0: morning. My name's Chris. I'm on staff here with the church and this morning I've been asked to stand before you and alongside you as God engages us with his very word. We'll do things a little bit differently today as you'll notice we didn't have an Old Testament reading. We'll get there. Um, we'll, do, we'll do that in just a bit, uh, but let's get familiar with our text before we do that. We'll be in 2 Kings chapter 5. You can find this book towards the beginning of your Bible, in what we call the Old Testament. It's in the middle of a block of uh, what I call one and two books. You got uh, one and two Kings, and uh, one and two Chronicles. So at this point in our story in Israel's history, uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. God's people have already split into two nations. So you have Israel and you have Judah. The people of God have been disobeying him over the years, specifically by worshiping other gods, idols, and it's caused them to split into two. So during that time, there was a lot of idol worship, and, pe- and people t- tended to worship whatever God could, could get for them, whatever they wanted, So when people had stopped serving God, they eventually just began to look out for their own interests or look out for themselves. They became self-serving. And we have that problem today, too, don't we? We can all be self-serving at times. Ultimately, we tend to look out for our own interests. Maybe you've become that way because you feel God has forgotten you in this moment or that he doesn't have your best interest at heart. Or maybe you've come to think that he hasn't helped you out very much lately, and so you have to look out for yourself. Maybe you even think that God doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, what's this letting bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Maybe you think someone else could do a better job. Either way, maybe you or someone that you know has thought, why should I serve God? Our text today prompts us to ask that very same question. Um, as we read, I believe that God has something special for us that will enlighten our hearts to know where our loyalties lie. We'll find an answer to the question, "Why should I serve God?" Let's begin reading uh, chapter five of Second Kings, and we'll read the first fifteen verses here. Now, Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. And so Naaman went in and told his lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and, and stand and call upon the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? And so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would bless your word and the hearing of it. That you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to know you more. I pray that we would know and be known in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me, uh, you've been spending a lot of time lately looking at screens. We've all had to become familiar with uh, Zoom or other apps to have meetings with people. And uh, some people have spent even more time watching uh, television or streaming things as well because they've had to be isolated due to COVID. And I'm sure you've all experienced it just as I have with everyone using the internet. Sometimes it freezes or skips or fails in some way. My wife and I actually kind of enjoy this sometimes when we're in a meeting with, you know, friends or family because you can see really silly faces sometimes when the, when the screen freezes. Great opportunity to take a screenshot. Either way, whether you're in the middle of a meeting or at the climax of an episode, you miss something important. You miss the headline. So if you're watching something, you you always have the opportunity to to just rewind and see what you missed. But if you're in a meeting, you might have to embarrass yourself, you might have to raise a hand, and ask someone to repeat the important part of what they just said, uh, the headline. Well, with our story today, uh, 2 Kings 5, we face a similar situation. We could be missing the headline. Now, most of your Bibles probably have a heading above chapter 5 that says something like, uh, Naaman healed of leprosy. And that's true. Naaman, of course, is healed of leprosy by the end of our story. We saw that. But if that's all you get from this story, you might be missing the headline. If all we see is a man healed from sickness, then this story doesn't have anything to offer us. We see people healed from sickness in hospitals all over the world. This story is not about a man who is healed. This story is about a man who changes allegiances. A man who has all of his beliefs and commitments challenged. This story is about a man who goes from self serving to God serving. The word servant or service is used 14 times in this single chapter to clue us into this this exact theme. So, what makes Naaman stop serving himself and start serving God? Why should anyone serve God? Why should we serve God? Well, as we read, I believe there are two huge reasons here that Naaman changes uh, from being self-serving to God-serving. And we'll also meet some characters who don't believe these two things that Naaman learns. And by the end of our time, I believe we'll have our answer to the question, why should we serve God? For the first reason, look with me in verse 1. Naaman is described as a guy who has it all. He's a mighty general. He's a, a great man having high favor with the king because of his many military victories. And it's pretty, clearly that Naaman, it's pretty clear that Naaman thinks very highly of himself as well. Uh, verses 5 and 9 say he has servants and servants and servants, tons of gold and silver, expensive clothing. He's got chariots and horses. He's got it all. And he expects others to bend over backwards in order to serve him. So, Naaman takes great care to present himself as successful and put together, especially when he appears to the king of Israel. And he's worked very hard to attain these things, but what we get insider knowledge of that Naaman doesn't know, we read that everything that he has was given to him by the Lord. Verse 1 tells us that it's God who made Naaman successful. As a matter of fact, God is no small actor in this story. Where else do we see God in action? Well, it's, it's no coincidence that uh, the servant girl uh, of Naaman's family is, is a servant girl from Israel. And she's just not any little servant girl. She is a girl who has seen and believes the power of God in the prophets. She says she just wishes that Naaman were able to go to the prophet of the Lord in Samaria because he would be surely healed. Now that's that's actually pretty impressive because remember this is a time of idolatry in Israel, and everyone's going their own way, serving their own gods, but this little girl is serving the Lord. Here we see again God is at work. God is in control of this story. A third place that we see God at work is in how Naaman is healed. Now the little girl had said to go to the prophet in Samaria that he could surely heal him. And Elisha is known for some really good miracles. This is the guy who miraculously healed a woman so that she could conceive and give birth to a son after being barren for many years. And if that wasn't enough, that same son later dies and Elisha comes back and raises him from the dead again. So he's no slouch when it comes to to the miraculous. But in this story, Elisha barely lifts a finger. Did you notice that? He won't even come out of his tent to see Naaman. He sends his servant instead in verse 10. And when Naaman finally goes to wash in the Jordan and be healed of his leprosy, like Elisha tells him, Elisha is nowhere to be found. In fact, Naaman even says as much when he wonders. He says, shouldn't he have come out to me and, and, and called on the name of his God and, and waved his hand over the area to, to, to cure the leprosy? Naaman is, is a bit confused here. This isn't how the prophets back home do things. But the prophets back home couldn't heal him either. So the reason that Elisha takes a back seat here is precisely to show us that God is the one who is doing the healing. Elisha even refuses to take credit in verse 16. The message is clear that God is in control. God is the one who brought this about himself. And Naaman gets this message. He understands. As he says in verse 15, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So there's our answer to the question, why should I serve God? At first, Naaman didn't know that God was in control, that God was sovereign. But now he says, I am your servant. So why should Naaman serve God? Well, for one, because God is sovereign which is just a fancy way to say that he's in control of everything from global affairs to personal affairs, just as we see in Name and story. Now, for some of you, the topic of, of God being in control is concerning, uh, maybe even a little bit scary. For others of you, it's, it's just kind of confusing how God can be control of everything, and, and yet we can freely live our lives still. Now, of course, we won't be able to talk about all of those things in in this story today because the text just doesn't really lead us there. What the text does is assume God's control, which is what we'll have to do in order to get the message that it's trying to convey to us. And so I invite you to take God at his word here this morning to assess this story at face value on its own terms. And if you can do that, I believe that you'll find the treasure intended for you in these words. And let me invite you, if you have any questions about God's sovereignty, how he can be in control of all things, feel free to send me an email or or talk to me afterwards and maybe together we can learn how God is in control. This makes me think of a story. um, You may have seen a video floating around of um, a professional basketball player getting into a disguise and playing against regular folks at a local court. It's kind of meant to be a prank. Sometimes they'll dress up like an old man, or, or maybe they'll try to look like a, like a computer tech guy. Uh, but the goal is to fool people uh, into believing that this person isn't a professional. And so the pro usually picks like the best guy at the regular court, uh, basically in order to, to take him down a peg. Now when they play, it's funny at first because you as the viewer know that this famous basketball player in disguise is going up against a regular guy and they let the regular guy think that he's winning for a while. They'll let him charge past or, or maybe shoot over the top of him and act like he's trying to block. Well, not long into the game, the pro eventually starts getting serious and it gets even funnier then. The regular guy starts to see just uh, how, how overpowered he is and outclassed by this professional. Um, and after a while, once the regular guy gets frustrated a little bit, usually, the pro will reveal that, of course, he was a pro the whole time and all of a sudden, the regular guy realizes that he never stood a chance. Usually, the regular guy is good-spirited about this. He'll just, you know, throw up his arms and give up. Or, or sometimes, once they realize, they'll maybe do like a fake bow to, to acknowledge that they, they, of course, didn't have control over the game the whole time and the pro did. Well, this is sort of like the situation that we have with Naaman. You see, this story has Naaman thinking that he's big and important, calling him mighty and rich, And he can command anyone to do anything for him. We see this particularly when Naaman goes to the king of Israel. Now remember, didn't the little girl tell him to go to the prophet in Samaria? In fact, if you look at a map of Israel, the the king is on the opposite side of the country from the prophet in Samaria. So why would he go there? Why would he go to the king? Well, you see, Naaman didn't know who was in charge. You see, in Naaman's country, the prophets work for the king. It was their job to perform a ritual or say a prayer or do some kind of sacrifice in order to convince the gods to help uh, the king. That was their job. And if they didn't do their job, they could maybe even be put to death for it. So, when Naaman is told to go to the prophet, he goes to the king. Because he thinks the king will make sure the prophet gives him a good miracle maybe even under the threat of death. But you see, that's not how the prophets of God in Israel work. Even the king says this, he rips his clothes in frustration, and he says, am I God that I can heal people? The king of Israel knows that he's not the boss of Israel, but that God is in control. And so, over the course of this story, Naaman learns that he's not the boss and that God is in control the whole time just like the pro-basketball player was always in control of the game. It just took the regular guy a while to to recognize that. But once he does, he submits. Now, of course, the difference in power between God and Naaman is far greater than the difference in ability between a a pro-basketball player and and a regular guy. Nevertheless, Naaman does the same thing. He sees the Lord's sovereignty, his control over all things, and he says, I am the servant of the God of Israel now. There is no other. Now, there's a ton of situations in our lives that make us realize that we're not in charge. Especially in the last year during a global pandemic, uh, we might be more ready to realize that there's just some things in the world that we don't have control over. And if, if you're feeling overwhelmed or helpless at your lack of control in your own life, let me just encourage you that there is somebody at the steering wheel of your life, even if it's not you. There is someone who has power and control. And this text shows us that God does not just let events play out, but is actively tending this whole world that we live in. Maybe you struggle with a lack of control differently than that. Maybe, maybe when you think of God's complete control over everything, you just throw your hands up and you just give up, just like the regular guy did. Maybe you're more tempted to think that your actions don't matter in the end, so you should just do whatever you want. Well, this story helps us here too, actually. Remember the little servant girl? She's the one who actually told Naaman about the prophet who could heal him. She's the whole reason he sets out on this story, this little imprisoned servant girl. God is fully capable of speaking directly to Naaman if he wished, He could have sent an angel in blinding light, throwing fireballs if he wished, but instead he uses the little servant girl, who has no power in this story. This little girl had every right to be self-serving in this moment. Naaman was her captor. She could have just let him rot, literally, in his leprosy, but instead she chooses to serve him because she knows that God has the power to heal him. Now, if God can use a little servant girl to accomplish his purposes, he can surely use you as a servant as well. And we know that he does. As the people of God in in modern times, we must serve God just like the little servant girl did, by sharing with others who he is, that he has the power to save, so that they can come and receive good gifts, just like Naaman did. So now we see one reason why Naaman went from self-serving to God-serving. Naaman learns that he's not in control, even of his own life, but that God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. And so why should he serve God? Well, for one reason, Naaman chooses to serve God because God is sovereign. But this is only one reason why Naaman goes from self-serving to God-serving. There's one more important reason, and we'll have to read the rest of the story to see how it ends. Let's start in uh, verse 15. So Naaman returns with his company, comes before the man of God, and he says, Now accept a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any god but the Lord. But in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, a servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a, a talent of silver and, and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in in his house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. And he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But Elisha said to him, Did not my heart go? When the man turned from his chariot to meet you, was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And so he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Look with me, uh, beginning in verse 15. After Naaman is healed by washing in the Jordan seven times, he goes back to Elisha and he thanks him, right? That's a normal thing to do. That's what I would do. That's what you would do. But is that all he does? Naaman remembers all this wealth that he brought with him, the gold, the silver, the expensive clothing, and, and he naturally wants to give it to Elisha the prophet. And remember, Naaman is, is still kind of getting used to how prophets work in Israel. In Naaman's country, if you wanted a prophet to do a ritual for you, the prophet expected payment. Sort of like Billy Crystal and the, and the Princess Bride. You want a good miracle, you've got to pay for it. Well, what does Elisha do? He says, I swear by God, I will not accept any payment. Now, again here, Naaman is confused. Verse 16 even says he begs Elisha to take his money and riches, but Elisha flatly refuses it. You see, Naaman can't quite understand the graciousness of God. Or in other words, he doesn't understand how God would be so kind to him, an enemy of God's people, when he doesn't deserve it. So before, when we really looked beneath the surface, we found the headline of God's sovereignty in this story. And we saw how that made Naaman into a servant of God. Do we see this, this other headline of God's graciousness throughout the story as well? Well, I think we do see it in two important places. First, with the king of Israel, and then with Gehazi at the end, Elisha's servant. Uh, when Naaman came to the king of Israel and asked to be healed, the king immediately rips his clothes, right, which is kind of strange. But uh, in the Bible, that's that's uh, just a way to depict extreme frustration or, or sadness. And at this point, the king of Israel is very frustrated because he's between a rock and a hard place. You see, he knows that if he doesn't get Naaman healed, then this great military general, Naaman, might set his expertise to work on him. But he also knows that if he tries to force a prophet of God to heal an enemy of Israel, it's not going to go well for him. Because remember, the king of Israel is not the boss of Israel. That would be God. So you see, in verse 7, the king of Israel understood that God could heal Naaman. In other words, he knows that God is sovereign, he's in control, but he doesn't understand that God is gracious and willing to heal, especially to heal an enemy of his people. Remember, the Syrians have been fighting with Israel. We see that in verse 2 when they take this little servant girl from the land of Israel make her a slave. Now, uh, Jehoram is likely the king at this time uh, in Israel. He's, he's not a very good king. He's not interested in serving the Lord. And the reason is because he only understands that God is sovereign. He doesn't understand that God is gracious and kind and loving. So this leads the king of Israel to look out for his own interests, to serve himself rather than God. If he was serving God, he would be welcoming in other sick people into his country to come and be healed by the only God who is powerful enough to do it. Where do we see this this theme of graciousness? Elsewhere, We see it with with Gehazi at the end of the story. This is Elisha's servant. In verse 20, Gehazi is so frustrated that God was gracious to Naaman by healing him and not accepting payment that he runs after him in order to, quote, get something from him. So you see, Gehazi is being self-serving instead of God-serving here. Unlike the king of Israel, though, Gehazi understood that God was gracious. He just didn't like it. So he lies to Naaman and he steals from him and then he lies to Elisha about lying and stealing from Naaman. However, the reason that Gehazi fails to serve God here is because he doesn't remember that God is sovereign. So he thinks he can take advantage of the grace that God is is giving to, to Naaman. But in the end, the Lord knew what Gehazi did because the Lord knows everything. That's why at the end of the story, Naaman's leprosy ends up clinging to Gehazi and all his servants forever. Gehazi was self-serving and tried to take advantage of God rather than serving God. So in verse 26, Elisha says, It wasn't the time to accept gifts from Naaman. Showing us that it was much more important in this story for Naaman to see God as merciful and gracious. That's what needed to happen. And Gehazi interfered. So where else do we see that, that kind of action, someone like refusing to take payment for a job well done? Honestly, I had to search a little bit to find a, a good example for this, but um, you may or may not know this. George Washington, the beginning of our nation, actually at first refused to take payment for his job as, as president. Uh, though he was offered a, a great salary for his work in helping establish our nation, uh, he, he was more concerned with the message that this new country Um, would send to Great Great Britain and the rest of the world. However, eventually Congress convinced Washington that he needed to be paid for his work, otherwise it would set a bad pattern for future presidents. So eventually he agreed and he took a salary. Uh, But in other words, Washington was more concerned with the message he would send if he were to receive payment. And that's a powerful gesture, isn't it? Imagine if if, if you all were to go into your jobs uh, tomorrow morning and just say you know what, I just believe in what we're doing here so much that I, I would rather not be paid for my work. The Apostle Paul sends the same kind of message in 1 Corinthians 9. He refuses payment that is owed to him for his hard work and caring for the Corinthians. And he does this because the message of God's grace for sinners is more important to him. Paul would hate for a little money to come between the people that he loves And the message of God's grace for them. We see this with God too in our story. Um, Elisha says, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will not take payment. Now, it's interesting because there are other times where Elisha does, in fact, take payment from people for his work as a prophet. So why does he refuse payment here? Well, in verse 26, he tells us it wasn't the time to accept payment. Or in other words, it was more important to hear this message of God's grace. That's what Gehazi didn't understand. This is what makes Naaman a servant of God. In verse 17, after Elisha refuses twice, Naaman says, Well, please give to your servant two mule loads of earth, for your servant will not offer sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. So God's God's gracious refusal through Elisha to accept payment convinces Naaman to serve only him. And he even asks for some Israeli dirt so that he can take it back to his homeland and worship the Lord with that. But it's even better than that. In verses 18 and 19, God is even so gracious as to forgive Naaman for having to fulfill his duties by going into the house of another god. The radical grace of God towards Naaman has turned him into a servant of God. Have you noticed that Naaman started out kind of high and mighty, thinking a lot of himself? But at this point in our story, he uses the word servant of himself five times in three verses. That's incredible. That's a change of perspective, that's a change of commitments. So why should Naaman serve God? Naaman serves God because God is gracious. And so we've seen that if we don't read Naaman's story carefully, we might miss the headline, the headline of God's grace in his life. Is there a chance that that might be true of each one of us as well? Do you think there might be times in your own life where you've missed the headline of God's grace? Maybe maybe you've even recognized God's grace in your life at some point but that was a long time ago. Maybe you've forgotten how much it meant to you at that point. Maybe maybe you're like the king of Israel, you're one of God's people, and you understand that God is sovereign. You get the intellectual categories, but you've forgotten that God is gracious. Maybe maybe for you God has become this, this all powerful bully. Someone you always have to watch out for and appease to stay in good standing. I want you to listen to me today. God does not need your appeasement. You might need to remember that God is gracious. He's kind. He's loving. He cares for you. He even loves an enemy of his people in this story enough to heal him from his misery. And get this, God doesn't ask for anything in return. How much more does God love you one of his people, his precious possession. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you have a problem with God's grace, like Ahazi did. Maybe the idea that God could be gracious to people that don't deserve it makes you angry or resentful. Why should they get good things? They don't work as hard as I do. They have enough already. They aren't even Christians. If that's you, let me just tell you first that you're right. There are definitely people in this world who receive God's grace all the time and they don't deserve it. I'm one of those people who's received God's grace when I didn't deserve it. And the reason is that that no one deserves God's grace. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be grace anymore, would it? In fact, I'm here to tell you that there's no one in the world deserving of God's grace. As Roman tells us, that we're all... Sinners, we've all fallen short. We all are deserving of God's wrath and not his grace. We are enemies of God, just like Naaman was an enemy of God's people. However, that's the beautiful good news. Gehazi couldn't understand it. But God exclusively gives grace to those who don't deserve it. And this text invites us to accept the grace of God on his enemies, rather than to interfere with God's message of grace, like Ahazie did. So, as we take a step back, what do we learn in this story? Well, we see two huge reasons why Naaman goes from self-serving to God-serving. Why should Naaman serve God? Well, why should anyone serve God? Why should we serve God? Because God is both sovereign and gracious. And it matters that these two things are held together and not separate. Alone, each of these points falls apart. What good is a God who is gracious towards me if he doesn't have the power to help me? And who would want a God who is all-powerful, controlling the events of our lives, if he doesn't care for me? But together, these two beautiful truths paint a picture for us of a God who loves us and desires to be gracious to us and wants nothing in return. That's a God that I could serve. That's a God that we can serve. And friends, the word tells us here that that's the God that we have. Aren't you glad about that? So the only appropriate response is to serve him. This is what Naaman does. He decides to serve God because God is sovereign and gracious. The king of Israel's response shows that he understood God as sovereign and therefore able to heal, but he couldn't believe that God is gracious and willing to do so. And Elisha's servant Gehazi made the opposite error. He knew that God was gracious to Naaman, but in taking advantage of that grace, he forgot that God was sovereign. But Naaman shows us the right response to God's sovereignty and grace, which is to serve him. As we draw to to a close, what does serving God look like for us today. We can't really take mule loads of of Israeli dirt and bring it back here and serve God that way, can we? However, we can serve Christ. We can serve Jesus. Many, many years after Naaman, Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him by the Father. And so we know that as God is in control in the story of Naaman, Jesus is in control of our story Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in control. And Jesus shows us the perfect picture of grace by willingly going to the cross to die, taking our penalty for our sins for us and rising to new life so that we could have new life. John 1 tells us that from Jesus' fullness we have received grace upon grace, or grace overflowing. Just as the king of Israel says that God can give life, Jesus has come to give life and life more abundantly. And just as Naaman couldn't pay back God for the grace that he received, we can't pay back Jesus. The the grace that he offers is free. Because Jesus has shown his power and grace to a former enemy of God like me, I too have become his servant. And I pray that as you consider God's power and grace in your own lives, that you too would become a servant of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your words in this story. Thank you for the treasure that you've left here for us to understand more of who you are. Enable us by the Holy Spirit to pursue you, to serve you, to recall who we are in you. Bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen.